occult crimes, paranormal investigations, urban legends, and strange happenings. Welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. Hey, welcome back to Myths, Magic, and Murder. This is episode 43. I'm Abby. I'm Kate, and we'll be your ghostesses on this great day. Bright and sunny. What are you talking about today, Kate? I will be talking about Dyatlov Pass. Interesting. What is that? It's an incident. It's... No one can explain it. I will give it a good go. Even I don't know what I think. Fair enough. I do like the unexplainable. I'm talking about Lizzie Borden, who may or may not have killed some people with an axe. Interesting. We'll find out about it. I'm sure we will. Before we do, though, I'm going to tell you a thing. Please do. So I got this from Cringe Control's Tumblr, right? I did ask permission, just so that everyone is aware. Very professional. It's about Flordelis. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's in. She's a woman in Brazil, right? She's a Brazilian gospel singer, congresswoman, and as we just found out last month, murderer and cult leader. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of things to be doing at one time. She became relatively famous in the 90s by creating this image of a saintly evangelical woman around her. She has three biological children and had adopted five teenagers. One of them is Anderson DeCamo, who would go on to become an evangelical pastor. Keep that in mind. Those are her A-kids. Why A-kids, you may ask? Well, after a while, she started getting involved with social causes and adopted a bunch of new kids, getting to the number of 55 adopted children. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The other 50 children are the B-kids. Back in the 90s slash early 2000s, there were rumours going around that she was actually kidnapping the children, but her whole good godly woman facade was absolutely Oscar-worthy, so the rumours only made her more famous and beloved. She became so famous and beloved, in fact, she became a movie in 2009. What? Yeah. That wasn't some B-movie stuff either. Those, the people that were in it were some of the biggest names in Brazilian cinema and television. The movie was huge, and all of the profit from the movie went straight to her. That's insane. Yeah, to help take care of her 58 children, with the actors refusing to get paid for it. Oh my gosh, I mean, that's quite a lot of kids to take care of, to be fair. That's how much everyone believed in her good godly woman shtick back then. Wow. After the movie, she released some gospel songs that became instant hits on every platform, i.e. radio and TV, because it was 2009. Now here's where things start getting weirder. So in the Tumblr post, there are two photos, one of her and a woman, and one of her son. So we have Flordelis and her biological daughter, Simone, Simone entered a relationship with Anderson DeCamo, her adopted brother, when they were teenagers. Okay. Yeah. So he's the one I said remember for later. Sure. So then, as Anderson gets older, there's a photo of him and Flordelis. And the pose is a bit suggestive, like he's behind her, arms wrapped around her. Right. It's weird. I wouldn't do it with my mum. It's weird. 
And it's because after they became adults, Anderson broke up with Simone so he could marry his mother-in-law slash his adopted mother. Don't like that. Nope. Not one bit. There were some rumours that things were unusual between the three of them, with some followers, a reminder that Flor Dillis was was slash is a successful gospel singer and Anderson was a successful evangelical minister, allegedly seeing all three of them coming out of the bedroom in towels. Yikes. Yeah. And that the couple frequented swing houses. But those rumours aren't important for the rest of the story, so let's move on. So, Flordalis and Anderson got married. Anderson began to take care of the family finances, eventually becoming the one who controlled all the money, right? He went on to become a really successful evangelical pastor along with her, and the couple became the power couple in Brazilian evangelical circles. What? Yeah. What are they doing to get this popular, right? But here's where things start getting darker. While the biological kids and the first five adopted kids had pretty good lives, the B kids lived in squalor, report- reportedly eating old pasta with sausages and dry bread every single day. One of her sons told the media about the initiation process he went through when he joined the family, where he spent days dressed in white and locked in a room eating only rice and vegetables. He alleges that they used their own blood to write psalms, and that after a while he was purified from the mundane by sleeping with Flor de Lis. Oh my gosh. Mm, that's some real culture right there. <laughs> yeah. Now with the setup out of the way, we finally reach the actual scandal of last month. So, it's 2019, right? Not right now, <laughs> but when this... It is. Thank <laughs> God, this was all just a fever dream. And Anderson wanted a divorce. We don't know his actual reasons, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it was due to everything I just wrote. This is, again, from Cringe Control's Tumblr. Possibly. But she was obviously against the idea. Her reasoning can be divided into three parts. The financial reason, the probable actual reason, and the reason she gave the police when shit hit the fan. The financial reason. If they got divorced, Anderson would take half of the family's fortune, which, in her and the A-kids' minds, seemed unfair, as half of the money would go to Anderson and half would go to 58 people. The probable actual reason. Anderson DeCamo was an influential evangelical minister, She had built her image of a good godly woman for the past 20 years, plus she'd just been elected a federal congresswoman from the state of Rio de Janeiro, being the most voted woman in the state. They were the evangelical power couple of Brazil. And the reason that she gave police when she hit the fan? Getting a divorce, especially such a high-profile Christian couple such as they were, would scandalize God. So obviously, she would have to find a less offensive solution to the situation. So she, along with Simone, Anderson's sister and ex-girlfriend, who had began to resent him, according to some sources, which I would as well, if if my brother slash ex-boyfriend started dating my slash our mum. So the two tried to poison Anderson by spiking his drinks. They ended up poisoning a bunch of her children slash his siblings in the process, but no one died. Turns out they didn't have to bother poisoning Anderson, as later that year he got robbed and murdered in Rio de Janeiro on June 16th. The murder instantly became national news. It was all people talked about for weeks. Even in the chaotic environment of the late 10s slash early 20s Brazilian politics, the murder of a federal congressperson's partner was huge. 
News and social media alike were abuzz with theories of political conspiracy, persecution and assassinations. She gave an interview during her son-slash-husband's funeral, weeping, begging for justice to be done. Fast forward to last month. The case had pretty much been forgotten by the wider public. And then... By accessing the phones of Anderson's immediate family, police found out that not only did Simone try to poison Anderson, not only were of basically all of the A-kids trying to kill the dude, but the man who murdered Anderson was not a robber at all, but rather a hitman hired by Flordelis. Wow. Yeah. So, long story short, evangelical good godly woman put a hit out on her own son slash husband. Well, that was wild. Yeah, and she can't be persecuted because she's a congresswoman. Well, thanks for that bit of strange news. I'm going to get straight into this because it's been eight minutes. I'm sorry about my long story. That's okay. So today I'm going to tell you about Lizzie Borden, who is a woman who may or may not have killed her father and her stepmom with an axe. My sources are Britannica, Biography.com, Grunge.com, Thoughtco.com, CBSNews.com, and PenLive.com. Do you know anything about Lizzie Borden? Nope. Great, let's get into it then. <laughs> so you might have heard of this case and not realised it if you're someone that used to enjoy using a skipping rope. Because what? there's a popular skipping rhyme, you know, when you, you sort of jump it and you say the little the little rhymes. Yeah, like England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Yeah, like that. It says, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. It's kind of wild. Oh my God. The things Children that kids sing, sing about. that? Mm, apparently so. Oh my God. I could never skip, so I didn't, but apparently so. It's, it's sort of along the same line as... um. Ring around the rosies, though, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that one's not so obvious. Roses, rosies. Rosie. Who is she? <laughs> Why are we forming a ring around her? <laughs> so Lizzie was born on July 19th, 1860 in Massachusetts, and she was the third child of Andrew Jackson Borden and Sarah Anthony Morse Borden. Their eldest daughter, Emma, was born nine years prior, and their middle daughter died when she was a baby. So it was the parents, Lizzie, and her older sister. This is going to be important, the whole family dynamic. Okay. So, her father Andrew started out as a carpenter, but eventually he became a successful businessman in manufacturing and real estate development. He was also the director of several textile mills in the area, and he was into banking. So her family were making a neat fortune, like they were pretty well off. She was christened as Lizzie also, not Elizabeth, so I'm not just shortening it because we're pals. And <laughs> yeah. her family were active churchgoers. Me and Liz. Um, Abigail and Elizabeth. I'm not Abigail, I'm just Abby. <laughs> See, that's why we're pals. However, tragedy hit the family just three years after Lizzie's birth, when her mother died due to what at the time was called uterine congestion, Oof. which people think may have been the terminology for a miscarriage and or a spinal disease. Oh my goodness. And because Liz was only three at the time of her mother's death, she grew up with no memories of her, which oh. is really sad. That's horrible. Two years later, when Lizzie was five, her father remarried to a woman named Abby Duff, Durfee Gray. Abby had a very bad temper, and she was said to be peculiar and very strong in her likes and dislikes. You. No. <laughs> the girls referred to their stepmother as Mrs. Borden and never called her mother. And Lizzie always went to her big sister Emma when she needed like motherly advice, because she saw her as more of a mother than Abby. How much older was she? Her sister? Mm. Nine years. Right. 
Some people think that the girls disliked Abby because they thought she may have been a gold digger because the family fortune was about $10 million at the time. Oh my goodness. So what's that in today's Oh, sorry. Money? I mean, in today's money. Oh, right. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, they, they own were the world. Yeah, no, it was today's money. Right. But others think that they disliked her simply because she was a bad-tempered woman and they, she didn't really want to be a mum. Yeah. Also, another reason they may have disliked her is because although they were very rich, the family lived in a run-down part of town in a small house with no indoor plumbing or electricity because their father was... A bit of a tight one, basically. He, he was, was frugal. Yeah, he was very hesitant on spending his money on his family. But not on his wife. However, in 1884, he bought Abby's half-sister a house. Oh, come off it. What's his name? Andrew. Andrew. God, Andy, get a grip. His daughters, of course, objected and fought with their stepmom, but he still bought the house. That's so rude. Could you imagine? You're like, Dad, we don't have any electricity. You're living in like, squal- squalor. You're gnawing on the same piece of bread. I doubt he was for a week. Foot, because they were millionaires, but I mean, well, you know, the equivalent of the time. Mm. But they, it definitely wasn't what they could have had. They could have been in the fancy part of town living in a really nice mansion, but they just weren't because he didn't fancy it. But then he went and bought this woman a house. You wouldn't be impressed, would you? A few years later, because they obviously then developed sort of a negative relationship with both of them, Andrew tried to make peace with the girls by letting them rent out his old family home as well as giving them an income, like pocket money, and a bank account with 70 grand in it. So, nice payoff, all things considered. Lizzie went on to teach at a Sunday school, but she was thought to be mentally disturbed. She was a kleptomaniac to the point where she would visit local shops and the shopkeepers would check for missing items after she'd left. Oh my god. And then they'd send a bill to her dad, oh. which he would have to pay every time. Wow. And Lizzie and Emma continued to live with their father and stepmom into adulthood. So I think they were living there pretty much their entire lives until when they were like 30. That's such like a rich kid acting out thing. Which to just take things? Yeah. Because like you have the money to pay for it. Just pay. Well, I didn't write this down. I think she was just... Had the urge maybe because it said also on some of my sources... That she went into her her father and her stepmom's room and she raided Abby's jewellery box and just took it all to the point where like her dad was like, what are you doing? So he put a lock on the door so that she couldn't go in there anymore. She sold the lock. And like she wouldn't need that. So either she was doing it to, to piss her off a bit or... Well, yeah, I understand like if she didn't like Abby anyway, maybe just inconveniencing her. Yeah. In July of 1892, when Lizzie was in her early 30s, she went to visit some friends with her sister Emma. Lizzie returned to the family home, but Emma decided to stay there with the friends for like a little while longer. So it was just Lizzie and her parents at home. A short while later, after they got back, well, she got back, um, her father and stepmother began experiencing intense vomiting, and Abby told people that she thought she'd been poisoned. And the only people in the house at this time were Lizzie and the maid. Damn. Not many people to pin that on, Lizzie. No, but they didn't do anything about it. The next day... (laughs) Oops, we've been poisoned. Anyway, what do you want for dinner? (laughs) The next day, 1892, 4th of August, Lizzie's father Andrew went into town with his brother-in-law, so it was Lizzie's biological mother's brother. Right. Around 9.30am on this day, Abby was hacked to death with an axe while she was in the, be- the guest bedroom. Oh my god. 
Why was she in the guest bedroom? I don't know. I think she was just sort of... I mean, she I know was, that's not the important bit here. She was just sort of stood. I don't I don't know. You ever oh. just go into a room? Oh, yeah, I love going into... Just walking into rooms, gliding in, some might say, and then just standing. Maybe she went in there and just forgot what she was doing. Been there. Andrew came home from his outing by himself at around 10.30, and he just took a nap on the sofa in the living room. 15 minutes later, he was also hacked to death with an axe. The crimes were so brutal that some people thought that Jack the Ripper had come to America. Just for them. Just for them. Neither of them were sex workers. The maid was taking a nap during this time and was awoken by Lizzie calling her to come downstairs. Lizzie said she discovered her father's body at 11.15am and that he'd been struck in the head with a sharp instrument. She said she'd been in the barn during the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. What's in the barn, Lizzie? Fishing equipment. Lizzie, just that up. No, I, I did write it later oh, on. Okay. She has a very specific alibi, we'll get to it. Lizzie and the maid called the doctor, who lived across the street, and they soon discovered Abby's body, like, immediately afterwards, which was much more, much more mutilated. When the police arrived, they immediately suspected Lizzie behind the, was behind the murders. Obviously. Who else would it... It's, you are the maid, hun. It seems very... Um odd as well that if her dad has just died you wouldn't go you wouldn't think i mean i wouldn't think to go wake up someone that works there like the maid you try and find your stepmom yeah mm. well i would definitely like even if i had a poorer relationship with someone if it was like their husband or whatever just someone that i live with someone that i had to class as family even if i didn't really well i would I, find them I guess if you have like a maid that lives in with you, maybe you would form a close relationship with them. People thought that maybe she was having an affair with the maid. We'll get back to that again. But so you don't know how close they were. Right. Okay. So obviously the police suspected Lizzie and they found that she had tried to purchase poison the day before. And a few days later, she'd burned a dress in a stove. Oh, Lizzie. Well, it was her. Later that evening, the maid reportedly left the house carrying a parcel. So she was also suspected. They That's didn't, not very odd. No, but I guess, you know, if there's only two people, you're going to try and find everything. Maybe she had an Etsy order. <laughs> they didn't find the weapon, although they did suspect that it was the axe that they found in the basement. They thought Lizzie had burned the dress to hide any bloodstains, so they arrested and tried her in June 1893. The press jumped on this like it became national news sort of immediately because they were you know a well-known rich family mm -hmm. emphasis on rich and it was a woman yeah as well so all the townspeople were like split on whether they thought it was her or not it was causing like a lot of controversy oh, like jacob and edward i guess <laughs> lizzie didn't really testify she just told the judge that she was in the barn looking for a fishing rod and eating pears Nice, nice. Which is a pretty solid alibi. You can't hear a murder if you're eating a pear. She did say she didn't hear anything. She was eating a pear. Well, pears are kind of crunchy. She was outside chewing on some pears, looking for a fishing rod. Yeah. I Everyone's mean, got hobbies. You can't judge people. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. So she straight up just said, I'm innocent. You know, you can speak to my counsel if you want to, and they'll just deal with this. Fair. 
So the evidence they had against Lizzie was the report that she'd burned her dress, reports of her buying poison, and they thought she might have cleaned the axe and made it look dirty on purpose to try and hide the weapon. And they didn't find any other actual weapon or any bloodstained clothes or any blood in the house. So they didn't really know. Hmm. So before I say whether they found her guilty or not, what do you think happened next? What do I think happened next? Rich young woman? On trial? Hmm. Probably nothing. She was found not guilty. Oh she my was goodness. Freed of her charges on what? June 20th. She was what? So then, her and Emma bought a mansion in the elite part of town with their inheritance. Nice. Their father didn't leave a will, and he died first. He died second, sorry. So all of the money went to his children, and none of it went to Abby's family. Lizzie also started going by Elizabeth, and she swapped get, uh, doing charity work, which she did all the time, to going to the theatre. But she never really seemed to fit in because many of her neighbours thought she was guilty because she was acting like super suspect basically the whole time. Fair. In 1905, Emma moved out of the home and never spoke to Lizzie again. And people think this is either because Lizzie developed a very close relationship with another woman or Emma didn't like Lizzie's theatre friends or she learned new information about the murders. So could yeah. be any of those or a combination. On June 1st, 1927... Lizzie died of pneumonia. Coincidentally, her sister fell and broke her hip the very same day and died nine days, late, nine days later. And they were all buried together next to their stepmom and father. Damn. So, of course, there's a lot of ideas about whether she did this or not mm -hmm. and whether she was innocent like they thought so at the time. So some people think she was criminally insane or hysteric in the Victorian sense, mm -hmm. and that she just eventually went mad and killed her parents. Other ideas include that she was physically abused by her father and stepmom, uh, or that she was angry she wasn't getting the life that her family could afford, because she obviously went and did that right after they died, so she could have done it for the money. Yeah. Uh, obviously someone else could have done it. People think she may have like conspired with the maid because they were secretly in a relationship, or, you know, her stepmom could have killed her Someone could have killed their stepmom. I don't know. Like, there's a bunch of different ideas. People think that the dad could have killed the mum, so then she killed the dad. But I don't really know why she would bother doing that. Well, yeah, if she didn't like Abby anyway. Not that I'm saying if you don't like someone, let their murder go unjust. Oh yeah, but you just wouldn't yeah. really, you know. I think it, she probably would have just had a stern talking to her father. So an alternative and more modern take on it is that Lizzie obviously committed the murders, burned the evidence, cleaned the axe, but because she was wealthy and a woman, no one thought she could have committed such a brutal crime. No way! So this case was re-looked into by a bunch of criminologists earlier this year, which was a really interesting article. Huh. And they did pick up on some stuff that wasn't really addressed in the other sources or at the time of the crime. Like the axe wounds on her hands. <laughs> The fact that she was holding an axe when they ended. <laughs> the whole time in court, she was just stood there with her axe. She called it Aunt Bertha. And she... <laughs> Stop. So the police did find a bucket of bloody rags in the washroom. But they also found blood on her underwear. So she was just like, I'm on my period. Which would make sense because they would be using rags at the time for that. And obviously, they couldn't use it as evidence because... What are they going to say? They can't test the blood and be like, this isn't your blood. This is your dad's blood. They couldn't do anything about it. So they were just like, sure, okay. 
well, we're not going like, to talk about the that. times, I don't know if they would have even brought it up. Like, it's awkward enough now to talk about periods, but, like, a bunch of men in court talking about a rich woman's period in the 1800s are you really gonna yeah they didn't they didn't bring that up could you imagine she got out of murder because she was like oh i'm on my period because that's what i say to men if they're, <laughs> if they're asking me overly intrusive questions you know or if i'm like oh, i'm gonna go to the loo and they're like oh why i'm like oh on my period and they're like oh why would someone ask why if you have to go to the toilet you're right i'm gonna take a hefty um <laughs> We're going to stop this right here. <laughs> also, when police found the axe in the cellar, it had just like a piece of handle that was a fresh break. And the hatchet head looked almost deliberately covered in ash to make it look like a piece of old junk. Okay. I mean, she's clever, though. If it was her or if it was the maid, because I wouldn't think to like purposefully dirty up the the crime scene evidence, you know? You want to get away with it, though. When it came to the poison Lizzie tried to buy, it was Prusik acid, which she said she wanted to use to put to put an edge on a sealskin cape. And Lizzie did own a sealskin cape, so this could have, you know, been legit. But she was unable to purchase it as the pharmacist had never heard of it being used in such a way. But this was kept from the jury during the trial. They didn't say she tried to purchase poison. Could it be used for that? Does anyone know? Did anyone look into it? I don't think so. Because if it can't, then she's guilty. Either way, the fact <laughs> that they didn't bring it up a trial, they must have known that it would have well, yeah, incriminated she her. she paid off the jury. Come on. Possibly. Also, what's wild is that when Lizzie was on trial, the prosecutor brought in the skulls of the victims. Nice. And well, I guess to be fair though, right? If you are trying to say that a rich white woman is guilty of murder in the 1800s you're going to pull out all the stops because no one is going to want to find her guilty at all and she probably paid so many people to find her not guilty you're going to bring in like the body and be like here it is death yeah well they brought in the heads yeah lizzie fainted there are crime scene photos online of the stepmom and the father and the skulls. I won't put them on social media, obviously, because I want it to be like a safe space away from gore and stuff. But yeah. if you do want to find them, they are online. You can see the the damage done, I guess. So when the skulls were brought in, Lizzie did fainted. Look? I did. Not voluntarily. They were on the articles. Right. They weren't that bad. The skull was kind of interesting because you could see just how bad it was for the for Abby. It was awful. But yeah, you know, that's, that's up to you whether you want to do that or not. Mm-hmm. So these criminologists on this website also brought up the idea that Abby had to have been killed before Andrew in order for Lizzie and Emma, Emma to inherit the entire fortune, well, or they yeah. would have had to share it, so that seems quite strategic. But the most powerful defence for Lizzie was that Emma testified that it was her idea rather than Lizzie's to burn the ruined dress because it had paint on it, which makes it seem more innocent. But that could have just, maybe they were in it together. I don't know, you know, you could think of that either way. Maybe it was just a coincidence. Yeah, well, I think even though it does seem like it was her, they had no evidence that it was her. No, not really. So you can't, I mean, it's innocent till proven guilty. And there was no way to prove that she was guilty. Yeah. Even now. I think that's what's hard, though, is because DNA wasn't a thing. Well, it, it was a thing, but you couldn't test it. And I think that's how a majority of crimes are solved. Yeah, there was there was nothing they could really go off of. Uh, the only, I mean, she does have some. 
there's some compelling evidence to say that she's guilty, but equally, yeah, there is not enough to be like, you definitely did this. But yeah, there's nothing that says, without a doubt, she committed this crime. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Lizzie was found not guilty, and people were cheering inside and outside of the courtroom. And what's interesting as well is that this group of people who were on this website, the criminology website, they organised a mock courtroom with a, like a new actual jury who hadn't heard of this case so that they could sort of do like an unofficial retrial mm-hmm. to see what everyone would say now, which I just thought was quite an interesting little thing to do. They all said she was guilty for killing a dad and all but two of them said she was guilty of killing a stepmom. That's interesting because I would have said it was... Oh, the way around, I think it might have been. Yeah, I would have said it seems more likely that she would have killed her mother-in-law. Yeah. No. Stepmom. Stepmom, thank you. Also, coincidentally, yesterday, her house sold. How weird is that? It happened so recently. Yeah, well, they were going to turn it into something like commercial. I wish they'd have turned it into like a museum. Well, the house that... So this was that was a house um, that she moved into after the murders. Okay. The original house that her stepmom and father died in is now a museum and a bed and breakfast that you can stay at. That's apparently haunted. Could you imagine staying there? No. No. I think they wanted to do a similar thing with the other house, but because of COVID and finances and stuff, it was easy to just sell it. Right. Fair enough. It's quite a nice looking house. Do you want to do the scare scale? Sure. That's all I have for you on that. How scary do you think this story is? Like a four and a half. Okay. They were in their own home and that scares me a lot about um, true crime because paranormal things are scary, right? But everyone that I know or everyone, you know, thinks of their home as a safe place. Definitely. Or like, you know, if you don't have a home, just sort of where you reside as a safe place. And to have that just completely infiltrated... Well, her dad just came home and took a nap at like 11am. You wouldn't expect anything to be happening. Exactly. Then. And like, especially if it was her, because then it's like your family. Like people that you think you can trust. Bam. You know, it's yeah. like if one day I woke up and like my mom had like killed my dad. I would be so shocked. That is so scary. It is really scary. How dangerous. People died. It's a five. What is the likelihood that Lizzie Borden killed her mother and father with an axe? Mm, like a three and a half. Okay. I think she could have. I don't know because I think things like um, her sort of general level of street smarts and things would have played a, a part in it. Because like I said, I wouldn't have thought to put ash on the murder weapon. Yeah, I think it was just downstairs like in the basement because the house was relatively big. It wasn't, you know, at the time, but mm. for now, I think it's just kind of like a normal little house. And I think the axe was like obviously half shattered just next to a bunch of tools. But that's crazy. And like, how would you shatter an axe handle? Using it really hard. Oh, didn't think of that. If you were, you know, bashing skulls in with it. That was very graphic language. Mm, I regretted it as soon yep. as I said it. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it would make sense if she was, you know, livid that she wasn't getting this lavish lifestyle. She thought she deserved it, that kind of thing. And then this woman who she didn't even like 
was getting everything and her family was getting everything i'd be yeah i'd be pretty annoyed i could see that that is a motive to kill but i don't know there's no solid proof so i'm gonna say just over half so like yeah three and a half yeah i think sort of the most compelling evidence besides the fact that the axe was broken you know lizzie and the may with young people there and she didn't like her stepmom is just the fact that you know she these people died in a very specific way mm. meaning that they would get all of the money and then right afterwards she had a completely switch in her lifestyle like she started acting like she had a few million rather than you know living in an average house with all the other people but if abby was at home before andrew was there then it could have just been like a oh she's here i'm gonna kill her and then i'm gonna wait for him to get home you know yeah well some people um in that mock jury that i mentioned in Mm -hmm. the mock trial the people who said that the two people that said that she was not guilty for her father's murder Mm -hmm. said that well she was guilty but she wasn't guilty in the sense that she was plotting to kill both of them it was more like she was plotting to kill her stepmom and then her dad came in and she panicked and didn't really know what to do or like she was just you know when you are in that kind i don't know what it's like to kill someone obviously but i imagine you'd be a bit sort of heated oh so like she murdered him but it wasn't premeditated yeah exactly right right. which seems kind of like it could have been possible it's possible but equally why are we all ignoring the fact that it could be someone that wanted to rob them oh easily yeah it could have been i don't know how the state of the house was when they were there maybe i don't know if anything was taken yeah and then they just thought oh you know lizzie's not here or whatever because she was out in the barn eating her pears maybe they just left you know or it could have been the maid it could have been the maid and the maid and lizzie could have been having it off together and the maid murdered abby in a rage that she was so horrible to lizzie and then lizzie came in like oh my god what have you done and she was like i did it for you and then they both had to clean it up together and then the dad came in and then we're like no my god and then lizzie was like i'll protect you and then she straight up murders her own dad this sounds more like a wattpad than it does (laughs) the actual stuff it's an alternative explanation i think it could be possible that the maid was in on it but i don't want to go on for this too long but i think it could be possible because she's a maid they had to do a, a if you're gonna absolutely kill someone with an axe to the point where but she's got to she, clean it up yeah but someone has to clean it up then to the point where there was no blood found on the ground or anywhere so it was cleaned up pretty well mm-hmm. is if they're living with a maid and they're a well-off family is the daughter going to be knowing like know how to clean that well compared to the maid maybe true just an true. idea that's a good idea okay or maybe they weren't killed there. Maybe they were transported there. Well, you never know. Anyways, so what do you want to write down for ideas? Okay. Lesbian love affair with the maid. Okay, this is already lots of words. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? Just an intruder. Intruder. Uh, Lizzie. Where was her sister? Her sister was staying with friends. It's kind of suspicious. Hmm. Maybe it was Emma. Perhaps. You think it might have been? Yeah. I think that's all I've got, to be honest. (laughs) Okay. Well, if you like the podcast, please check it out on social media at Myths Magic Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All of our reference photos will be up there. They will be. A follow would really be appreciated. It helps us grow. You can also go over to patreon.com forward slash Myths Magic Murder. 
If you want to support the show financially, thank you to everybody that already does that. It really does help us. We can put it towards the hosting the show because podcasting isn't as cheap as you might think it is. True. And we don't get paid for it. So. No, we don't. We don't have any ads at the minute. We're too small for that. Yeah. Um, so over on Patreon, you can pay as much or as little as you want. You get some extra episodes. You get behind the scenes stuff. You get to know that you're helping us out, which seems nice. You get our love. Yeah. And you get sort of pre-release information and that kind of thing. And also, if you have any haunted happenings, terrifying tales or spooky stories, you can email those over to us on mitsmagicandmurder at gmail.com. Should I get straight into it i think you should so my sources are wikipedia theatlovepass.com dailymail.co.uk allthatsinteresting.com edition.cnn.com forbes.com vice.com the international science times and moscow times so this whole incident is set in russia and they all have russian names so please forgive me i like that we do this i was just thinking about that review we got recently Thank you if you left that review where it was like, I love how hard they try to pronounce names. Well, I don't want to mess it up because it's it's people. Oh yeah, no, I definitely don't want to mess anything up, but please forgive us if we do that. I asked Alicia, she's my friend, she took Russian at university, but I myself did not study it, so I might not get it spot on. So Dyatlov Pass is a section in the northern Ural Mountains, specifically on the slopes of Hola Shaho. Good God, this is not going to go well. Which apparently means dead mountain in Mansi. For those that don't know, the Mansi are Ugrian indigenous people, and there are only about 12,500 of them, one of which is the current mayor of Moscow. That's interesting. This specific pass was named after Igor Dyatlov. Back in 1959, he was a 23-year-old student, an experienced grade 2 hiker with ski tour experience. So for those that don't know much about the grading of hikers, you start by getting 1A now, and it goes all the way up to 6B in Russia. However, in 1959, there were only three levels. So once Igor had completed this trek across the northern Urals, he would achieve the grade three certificate. So he was, he knew what he was doing. Can I ask you a stupid question? Yeah. What is that? What What are you grade hiking for? Is it like how hard, how good you are? Yeah. For like hard terrain. I don't, yeah. I really like, don't know much about hiking. Like distance and altitude and like terrain. Oh, so like when you're, right. So if it was like a level three hike, you could only do it if you were a level three Yeah, hiker, exactly. Otherwise well, it's like, it'd be too dangerous. It's like when you go skiing and you've got the black ski slopes. I don't know anything about skiing either. Oh, okay. I was going to talk about diving because I've read a few things about that. You get kind of the same thing. Well, yeah, it's just like, don't attempt this unless you really know what you're doing. Fair. You don't know anything about sports. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. He planned this trip with nine others, many of which he went to university with. I'll give you their names in a second. And again, I'm really sorry. Igor had planned every last detail of the trip and he okayed it with the Svetlovsk City Route Commission. One person was added to their trail, Semyon Zolotaryov. As he was supposed to go, like, he wasn't supposed to be with this group, but he was supposed to go with some others, but then he couldn't go with them, so he just got added onto their route. So the members of the hike were Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinina, Georgi Krivon. Ishenko, Alexander Koalivitov, I think, Zenaida 
Kolmogorova, Rustium Slobodin, Nikolai Thibaut Brignol, Semyon Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. I think he did a pretty good job at that attempt. Thank you. Sorry, it was so slow and so awkward. It's okay. We've got it out of the way now. Let's get going. <laughs> so the ages sort of range between like 20 to 23, apart from Semyon, who was 38. Okay. Yeah. He was studying for a master's in like climbing and hiking and stuff. So he was sort of the most experienced? Well, he and Igor were like at the same level. It right. was just that Semyon was older. Okay. So on January 25th, the squad arrived by the number 81 train to Evedil. They then took a GAZ-51 bus to Vizshai, spent the night here, then went to District 41, which was just a logging community. They began their trek on the 27th by sledding into a mining settlement. Only one day after starting, Yuri Yudin had to turn back because he had joint pain that made trekking such a treacherous route impossible. So, the other nine continued on the route. On January 31st, the group were trying to find the quickest route across Dyatlov Pass, but couldn't figure out a way to do it, so they stayed at their campsite from the previous night. On February 1st, they decided to give it another go, but in doing so went 500 metres off their planned route. This was probably no big deal, because they were all experienced hikers, they knew what they were doing. That night, they pitched their tent on the north slope of Hola Shalho. Although it was a hard expedition, it wasn't overly long. The group was expected to be back by February 12th. Igor had said to his sports club that he'd send a telegram as soon as they were back in Vizshai. However, when they started the expedition, Igor told Yuri Yudin, the one that stayed behind, that it was probably going to be a little later than the 12th due to the poor weather. This being said, when it got to February 21st, people began to worry. Oh my gosh, what year was this again? 59. Right. A search party was sent out, and the bodies of five of the hikers were found. No. The tent they'd been staying in was damaged. All of the group's belongings and shoes were left behind, but the tent had been cut open from the inside. Okay. Nine sets of footprints left the tent, some barefoot, some with socks or one shoe. These tracks led to a small fire that was about a mile away from their campsite. On a few of the trees, the branches were broken up to five metres high, meaning that possibly one of the hikers had tried to climb it to look for something, though no one's really sure what. Some of the bodies were only wearing underwear, and some had died in poses suggesting they were trying to get back to the tent. A few months later, the other four bodies were found. They were further away from the campsite and further into the woods. From the looks of it, the bodies that were discovered first had died first, and the bodies that were found later had taken the clothes off of those that died first to keep themselves warm. Right. As Dubonina was wearing Krivonishenko's, maybe, torn trousers. So people just kind of put two and two together and were like, oh, they've taken the clothes off of the dead. Right. At first, when the initial five bodies were found, police thought they'd just been overcome with hypothermia and died. However, when the other bodies were found, examination showed that they had suffered severely. Nikolai had major skull damage, Dubonina and Semyon had major chest fractures, which were reminiscent of injuries caused from the force of a car crash, 
Oh my gosh. The bodies had no extreme external wounds, though, as if they'd just been put under intense levels of pressure. Okay. The four bodies found later were missing tongues, eyeballs, lips, eyebrows, and more. What? The medical examiner just said that this happened after death, and the bodies were in a stream. So I guess that maybe the idea was that animals got to them. Why would... Okay. I guess that makes sense, but why would an animal not just get the rest of you? Well, that's what I was thinking. Why wouldn't you be more injured? Yeah. Hmm. Originally, people thought that the Mansi people were behind this and that it was an attack because they were on, like, sacred land or something. Okay. Several Mansi people were interrogated, but eventually investigators realised that there was no sign of a struggle or hand-to-hand combat and that the only footprints were that of the hikers themselves. That's so strange. Yeah. Interestingly, high levels of radiation were found on only one of the victim's clothing. Well, then it's aliens. And in all of the post-mortem documents, there was zero information about the internal organs. What? This is so strange. Mm -hmm. I wasn't braced for this. Anyway, the case was closed with the description that they died due to an overwhelming natural force, whatever that means. Okay, that's the most vague (laughs) Yeah, I tried looking it up. I was like, oh, maybe it's just, you know, medical examiner speak for like... An avalanche or something, right? And then what they did was just go, I have no idea. Yeah, they just went, mm. something weird happened here and I don't want to be any part of it. Shrug shoulders, just close it. The case was reopened in 2018. And as of July 11th this year, 2020, it's now been concluded that their cause of death was an avalanche. Okay. However, when they reopened the case and exhumed Semyon's body, they found inconsistent results. One expert said that this man had injuries resembling someone who'd been knocked down by a car, and the DNA found no similarity to the DNA of living relatives. Wait, what? Mm Mm-hmm. So they're not even sure it was Semyon's body that had been buried. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So maybe it was like yeah, hidden. Also. At the time of this, the military and, like, there was no information. It was all kept under wraps. All of it. The whole thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. My problem with saying it was an avalanche is that there's no proof that an avalanche happened anywhere near this location at the time. I was thinking, surely you would be able to see if there was an avalanche. Yeah, right. The tent was not buried under any amount of snow. And equally, had it have been an avalanche, the hikers, who were super experienced, wouldn't have gotten out of the tent, A, maybe at all, or B, in unsuitable clothing. Yeah, they've been doing this while, especially those two men. Yeah, like, let's not forget, none of them were wearing a pair of shoes. This is so odd. Also, if it was an avalanche, yeah, okay, they might have cut themselves out of the tent, But surely there would be major internal damage to all nine of them, not just the bodies found later on. Hmm. So, let's move on to other theories. You're going to love this one. Aliens. There's a report from a different group of hikers, dating back to the night that all of the Dyatlov hikers died. The report says they saw strange orange spheres in the sky. Similar spheres 
were observed around the area from February to March 1959 by loads of different people, including people who worked for the military and who worked for the meteorology service. When reports were given to the 1959 investigation, they were not noted down, and witnesses came forward again years later. Perhaps aliens could explain why a group of nine experienced hikers would cut themselves out of their tent and calmly walk away from it into the night. I think it might be. I know it's a it's a it's a meme. I always say aliens because you know that's just how I am. But I mean, this seems kind of alien-like. I won't lie. It does, yeah. And like I say, when they when they looked at the footprints to see if they were like in a panic or whatever, they weren't. They just walked out. Mm, alien trance. Run. Yeah. Another theory is infrasound. This was put forward by Donny Escher's 2013 book, Dead Mountain. Basically, infrasound is much too low for the human ear to register, but it affects people by making them go into a state of extreme panic. Okay. It's That's possible, yeah, that the wind going around the slope of the mountain could have caused this sound, thus meaning that the hikers freaked out, cut their way out of the tent, and then they fled down the slope just in panic. And by the time they were no longer able to be affected by the infrasound, they were too far away from the campsite. So a few died of hypothermia, and the others died from stumbling into a ravine. That's a very interesting theory. My problem is they still didn't have any tongues, and they were calmly walking away, so it... I feel like you don't walk in a panic. Yeah. Hmm. Alternatively, military tests. Basically, the Soviet military used to conduct parachute mine exercises. You're going to ask me what it is, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. A parachute mine is a naval mine dropped from an aircraft via a parachute. So, like, it would be in the plane, you would see a boat, you would drop it on the boat. Okay. From the plane. Pretty straightforward. The mine then proceeds to detonate while it's still in the air rather than once it hits the earth. So it's possible that the group was sleeping in their tent, then they heard a parachute mine detonate, they all fled the tent in the quickest way possible, not knowing what was going on. From here, some of them died of hypothermia, but the ones who had worn more clothing or scavenged it from their friends had been fatally injured by the parachute mine concussion. The injuries match up, parachute mines cause heavy internal injuries with very little external trauma. It equally could explain the glowing orange orbs that the other hikers had seen nearby, except it was a detonating mine instead of a UFO. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to say, like, mind control or something. No, but no. that was interesting as well. As well as this, there's proof that the Soviet military were testing parachute mines in the area around the time that the hikers were there. Okay. People then go on to speculate maybe the military tried to cover their tracks by manipulating the positions of the bodies to give a different narrative. I think it's quite clear that someone had something to do with this. Yeah. Well, they think that the military moved the bodies because of liver mortis. So that's what we've mentioned before when the blood drops to the lowest point of the body upon death. So they basically weren't in the correct positions according to where their blood had sat. Ah. Oh. Yeah. 
Equally, the tent had been incorrectly erected, which is unlikely to have been from nine experienced hikers looking to get their grade three certificate. Yeah. I think it, something's definitely... Fishy. Funky here. Funky. Now it's time to get Get funky. funky. (laughs) Others think that the military have been testing radiological weapons due to the fact that there was a high amount of radiation found on one of the bodies. However, if this were the case, then why wouldn't it have been found on all of the bodies? People also think it could have been radiological weapons because some of the hikers' skin was orange and the hair was grey when they were found. Whoa. Yeah. But... Apparently this kind of thing just kind of happens as a natural process of mummification when you're in the cold and wind for nearly three months. Mm. Yeah, pretty gross. Alternatively... My goodness. (laughs) That wasn't a word. Alternatively, the lack of clothing could be due to a phenomena known as paradoxical undressing. So, do you know about that? No. Okay. For those of you that don't really know much about hypothermia... You know, Who does? Me. <laughs> I knew about this. So, you know when you get so cold, you feel hot? Yeah. Like your skin burns? It's basically that. So whoever has hypothermia starts to think they're really hot. So they get confused and start taking their clothes off to cool down. Except they're freezing. So they even they get even colder and it doesn't help. I didn't know that there was a term for that. Yeah. The International Science Times gave this as a possible reason for the incident at Dyatlov Pass. However, this wouldn't explain why some of the hikers had taken the clothes from the corpses to wear, as they obviously had the right frame of mind to put on more layers. Yeah. Finally, could have been a yeti. I was thinking if we were going to bring up yetis. There's not much basis for it to be a yeti. I thought I'd include it because I knew you were going to love it. I do like the A's. But nearly all of the hikers had cameras on them. And in one specific photograph that will be on our social medias at Mids Magic Pod, you can see a human like animal like thing coming from behind a tree in the distance. It's honestly kind of unsettling. Oh my god, what the hell is that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's freaky. I don't like that. Yeah. So maybe the group had seen this earlier and tried to explain it away and then maybe heard a noise at night, freaked out, got lost and died. But it's not likely they were chased by any form of yeti or animal because the only footprints were those of the hikers. Is that that definitely from from them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a real photo. That's just, you know when you see something and it makes you feel deeply uncomfortable? Yeah, my eyes like welled up when I saw it. I'm going to get nightmares. I don't know what that is. Yeah, no, I can't explain what that is. I'm going to stop looking at it now. Somehow there were still a few more ideas than the ones that I've covered, but they kind of ranged from like, does anyone care to like, that's just not true. Fair enough. Um, There were ideas of like smoke coming from the stove into the tent. So they left, but then like, why would they have gone that far? Um, local wildlife chased them, but then there were no prints. Ball lightning, which is a phenomenon that can happen. It's possible, I guess. Um, methanol poisoning and and more. There's a whole load. It is such a well-reported thing. And Dyatlov Pass, dot com, I think is the website, 
yeah, the atlovepass.com. It, it has everything. It has all of the photos. It has all of the timelines. It has every form of explanation you could ever need. Wow, that's good. As a warning, it does also have the crime scene photos. Ah. But it's in a different setting. It says 18 plus. It's all, I, yeah. Saw them. It's rough, but yeah. So there's all of the information there. We see crime scene photos so that you don't have to. Yes. Unfortunately, we do. So, what do you think? I think this has blown my tiny little mind. Well, this was a listener request. Thank you, listener request. Thank you very much. How scary do you think? Five. <laughs> How dangerous? Five. How likely do you think it was an avalanche? Zero. <laughs> Not even a bit? No. It could have been. Why was the tent fully out? <laughs> okay. Zero. If it was an avalanche, surely the tent would have been under some snow. Does that does that amount of snow melt, but then the rest of it just is fine? <laughs> Enough to leave prints? <laughs> I don't think so. What alternatives do you have? It's aliens. Yep. Is my first one. Mm -hmm. Because you love them. I yeah. Equally, weird orbs in the sky. They just calmly left a tent. I feel like aliens could do some stuff like that with the uh, Betty and Barney Hill thing we talked about. Mm -hmm. It was the same sort of, you know, casual approach. I That could explain why they had some sort of radiation, that one guy did. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were just dropped from the spaceship afterwards. Possibly. Maybe that's why they, maybe they took their like eyes and tongues and then just dropped them down and that's why they had the force. Mm -hmm. Entirely possible. But surely then they would have had more external injuries if they were just shoved out of a UFO. Maybe they were gently lowered down and then like two feet above the ground they were just dropped. Really? I don't think... That uh, seems a bit It's petty. just an idea. Okay. They were like, you struggle too much. <laughs> I, I really find the idea of the parachute test thing. Parachute mines? That, yeah, that seems quite logical. I think that would make right? some sense. I've never heard of the thing before, but... Yeah. Going from everything either. else. Yeah. I think the only thing I find confusing is the radiation maybe that could happen from a mine. And also the tongues and eyes. Like I, I understand people listening that are like, Abby, why can't you understand animals eat people? I get it. But it just seems very specific to me that you wouldn't just eat, you know, like they would be missing flesh or whatever rather than just... I mean, possibly if they'd been there for a couple months already, they didn't really have that much flesh. Yeah, maybe they were just... Maybe well. those bits kind of, because like your tongue is in your mouth, like it's enclosed, your eye is behind your eyelid, it's enclosed. Maybe those bits were sort of left. That's really gross, but yeah. Yeah. I think it does make sense. I'm not just missing the idea. I'm just trying to think about others, you know. And also, so their bodies were at the bottom of a ravine. So it could be that they were kind of under things, you know, like rocks or something. Maybe yeah. that's the only bit that animals could get to, I guess. I, I think know. it's entirely possible that animals, birds or whatever could have easily taken those parts. Yeah. You know, I'm not dismissing it. Oh, also, <laughs> to go against the idea of an avalanche, the bodies were very shallowly buried under snow. Very, extremely. So, The thing I have with the mines is that someone has clearly interfered with this entire situation. Mm -hmm. The military, probably. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would make sense with the mines if they were trying to cover up the fact that their mines had killed people. Mm -hmm. 
or you know hurt them or whatever or freaked them out or you know just caused an issue yeah so they went in and, and made it look weird and was like no one will figure this out if it's just really strange true but the only footprints were the hikers i guess maybe they they could use i don't know how the, the military, military can't just poop out snow they could cover it up yeah, but then you would see that snow had been moved. I don't know. They've got. I think they've got some weird technology in there, and okay. I wouldn't trust them one bit. I'm going to write cover up as a separate one. I think maybe it was at least at some point a cover up. Yeah. Whether it was the aliens and the military got involved, whether it was the military and the military were like, we can't have people knowing this. I think at some point maybe it was the Yeti and the military were like, oh god, the Yeti idea. I wanted to dismiss it as soon as you said it, mm-hmm. and then I saw that photo. Yeah, that is. Literally on the diatlovpass.com website. It's it's scary. That photo is either some kind of weird animal that we've never seen before. Some kind of yeti, for sure. Because that doesn't look very human. It's either a human that is wearing something very strange, but I don't... It, it, they're sort of unrecognisable. I don't really know what it would be. Maybe it would be someone there. Maybe it was like a cult, and that was one of them. Or it's an alien. But it's burned into my brain now and I can't unsee it. So whoever it is, it's a bit freaky. What do you think that photo is? A yeti. Just for sure? I cannot explain. It's such a clear photo of something that is not human. I guess it could be a human just in like a fursuit though. If maybe there's Would like their a- face entirely covered? Possibly. You can't yeah. make out any discernible features of this. And they're obviously coming towards us. So it's not that we're just seeing the back of someone with the hood up, you know, because I thought that originally. But the way that the limbs are positioned, that is the front of an animal. Well, I was thinking maybe it could be someone in like a full. If you're. Say there's like a cult in the mountains, which was my other theory. Oh, so, mountain cult. Mountain cult. And they're wearing, I'm not talking about the indigenous people, I just mean separate to no, that, no. there's yep. a cult in the mountains, yep. like in that area. Because mm-hmm. I don't think that the indigenous people, maybe they did, but it just doesn't really feel Everyone as... was like, look, these people are super friendly, it wasn't them. Yeah, why would they do that? Yeah, no, apparently they're just really nice. But if there was a cult in the mountains, maybe they're wearing like this sort of fur coat because they live in the mountains in the cold, and maybe it's like a, like a face hat. You know, like a full thing. And it just has like small eye holes so they can see. Yeah, but the way that the torso is, it kind of looks like this animal's got a bit of a gut, you know? Sure. So I don't think that a fursuit would show that because it would you would be in a suit. That is skin. That is an animal. That's not a person. Please check out this photo at Myth's Magic Pod. I don't even care if you don't follow us. I want you to see this and tell me what the hell it is. Give me some goddamn explanations. <laughs> Someone explain. Well, anyway, my yeah, those are my ideas. Honestly, I don't know what happened. I couldn't tell you. I don't think I have one idea that is stronger than the others. Yeah, this is why when you were looking for a tagline, I was like, I can't tell you what happened. I don't have a clue. It's an unexplained thing. And on that note... Don't listen before bed. Listen before bed. Don't. There's a yeti.